All right. I see some familiar eyes here today, and I'm trying to become familiar with people's eyes. And just let me tell you, if you're, uh, some of you might be described as not being neurotypical. And something about some people who are not neurotypical is some people have a level of face blindness, or it takes a while to get to know what someone looks like. And it can be really challenging when everyone is uh, wearing masks. So I keep having this deal where I'm going up to people, like I'm gonna talk to them or I say something, and it's not how I thought it was. And that happened anyway. It's like, and uh, it's happening even more. So uh, just part of my life journey has been becoming close friends with embarrassment and getting really well acquainted with it and not taking it to heart. So Daniel, uh, today is uh, a clarification and maybe even a message that could have preceded Daniel or just maybe a message that I could have taught every other week between Daniel. And uh, got to reiterate that the point of everything we say and do here is to glorify love, God, to live within his love, and communicate to one another you are loved by God and us, and then enact that love in opposition to any uh, force that would harm people, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, be it abuse or poverty, that we carry forth the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that animates us, modifies us, and redeems us. So that's the end goal, is love. And uh, Daniel was making that point. So everything we do or say here is our best attempt to love God, our best attempt to love people, our best attempt to communicate God's love for people, and our best attempt to communicate God's love for you. Um, and part of like all of us that are endeavoring to serve or lead or facilitate, whatever word is most helpful, there's an acronym that uh, I like to think of. Uh, I've heard this, I don't even know who started, but it's called FAT. Everyone should be FAT. And not like P-H-A-T, you know, like 19. It's FAT is an acronym for faithful, available, and teachable. And faithful just means you're going to be present to what God's doing. Available means you allow there to be margin in room in all elements of your life, margin in space, in time, in relational equity, in finances. You, we are people that make space so we can pivot in opportunities to demonstrate love to others. And we're teachable. And with teachable is the presumption that we're always going to be somewhat off the mark. We're always going, we're, I mean, we're going to have big lists of fails. But I think having a, a, the, the perspective Jesus would have us uh, hold on to regarding fails is these are just opportunities for more love. Fails are opportunities for more love. Fails, you know, I, I believe there are supernatural forces and physical forces of evil in this world. I mean, I'm, I'm one of these guys, I believe in like angels, demons, the whole deal. And I believe uh, forces of evil and systems, even peoples of e evil, always use shortcomings as a gateway for shame, harm, self-loathing, or arrogance. You know, when people are confronted uh, with a truth, 
you can buckle down and be arrogant, which is a real fail, or you can be ashamed, which is a real fail. And one thing we say is we don't do shame, we do conviction. Conviction is the joy when the Holy Spirit is in our lives that when we figure out where we've missed the mark, that God has empowered us to do what is more healthy and more life-giving. Like when Zacchaeus found Jesus and he realized, financially exploiting all my neighbors around me is not good. Why don't I just give all the money back? <clears throat> he wasn't begrudgingly forced to give his money back. He's opened up his windows and hanging, handing bags and go out and he, the guy's giddy. The idea that justice, repentance, reparation, however you want to call it, is something that God joyfully empowers us uh, to engage in. It's not shame. So one of the slogans, we don't do shame, we do conviction. Conviction comes with empowerment. Empowerment is cool. So, <clears throat> but what's hard for me is uh, it's difficult to get up <clears throat> a lot of weeks knowing that uh, whatever I uh, aim for, there's always going to fall short a little bit. And I recognize that any of us that do anything, whatever we do is going to fall short. But I think I really... There's times when I really screw it up, and I think it's good to pause and rewind and say, if I could do it all over. And uh, I have a point of clarification that I think is super important to basically, my whole view of what it means to follow Jesus in our world, and I believe what it is to follow God in our world, I believe this was true for Daniel and Babylon, I believe this was true for Jesus Christ and his disciples. I believe it was true for the last 2,000 years and anyone who didn't embrace this truth. Uh, many groups did blood, kill people in the name of Jesus, and it all came from not embracing this truth. And I believe it applies today. And I believe I, I can't preach scripture with somehow articulating that to follow Jesus is to set you against default trends, all right? To follow Jesus, there is a sacrifice, there's a vulnerability, and there is a sense, you're not being oppositional to be oppositional. You're filling yourself with something that crowds out something else. You have to choose, you know? We always make choices. A lot of people say, oh, you make time for what's valuable to you. I said, well, first of all, we don't make time. That's uh, that doesn't work, physics, everything like that, making time. I think pagans might have believed that, but Christians believe, no, we're bound by time and space. We're finite and uh, fragile. And uh, we choose to use that finite time in one way that means we cannot choose to use it in another way. So every positive thing we do has a negative involved. What is really a bummer, when people believe in a grid of holiness and put Jesus Christ in systems of theology in all these different squares where there's five things to argue about in each square, and that's how churches divide and justify killing people and stuff like that, counter to that is a story of Jesus and a story of loyalty and allegiance. But I really screwed up. So this, when I screw up something that is so close to my heart, I gotta uh, rewind. So, um, I'll get to this. So, if we're called, as followers of Jesus, to be truth tellers, and here, truth is not the same as honesty, and truth is not the same as being factual. I, uh, 
kind of had this teased out to absurd regards is I, I had a roommate many years ago who always thought people just need to be honest, and that was his slogan. So anything that he thought in his mind that was accurate, he would say to other people. And it, uh, you know, we'd be like, we were in this home Bible study, and he thought someone was doing a terrible job teaching. It was like the first time. He goes, you know, whatever you say makes absolutely no sense to me. I think this is a waste of my time. You know, just being honest. And it's like, it was crushing. And I noticed this person uh, became pro progressively more kind of socially isolated. And uh, they kind of thought it was maybe persecution for telling the truth. And in a culture of power and privilege, what most people think of persecution is, no, you're just being a jerk. You know, there is so much persecution in the world for loving. But if you're treated badly for being a jerk, it's because you're a jerk. All right, and I think, but, so what's the difference between truthfulness and factualness? Facts are variables within a story, and you can tell an untrue story using those facts, or you can tell a true story using those facts. You know, if you ever read historical fiction, they, they mention all these historical events that happened, but then they weave a narrative that may be different from what actually happened. Truth is more of an existential reality. When we use truth, can we utilize truth for referring to the story we find ourselves in? Can we utilize truth to talk about the meaning of life? Can we utilize truth to deal with the condition of the heart, not what analysis shows us? And what I, uh, example of that is like, if I see, so let's say, I mean, all of you guys, this is a safe thing. All of you guys are just beautiful people today. Everyone looks great, and I'm kind of jealous of some of you. Uh, you know, held it together a little bit more than I have at age 50 now. But having said that, if I came up, so let's say someone came up here and they just looked like they were in shambles. I said, what happened to you? Who, look who woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You're a mess. Have you thought putting a brush to that? You just, and I gave them an accurate reflection that they looked like a, a slob. That might be factually true. Actually, you know, it could be totally factually true, but I'm lying. And let me explain how. The truth is a bigger picture. That per here's the truth. That person walked in here. Just by virtue of being a human, they are precious to God. Just by virtue of being a human, they are worthy of love, reverence, dignity, just by being a human, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I need to see where that dignity resides and fame the spark of dignity into a flame. I'm called to be an encourager. So the truth is the story. Facts can obscure your telling of the story. Or something that you think, and so for me, it is a little bit on the spectrum at times. A lot of times I say, well, what I'm saying is accurate. He said, but you're missing the story. You're being, you're being unkind. But you said this, and I said this, and I'm right. Yeah, but you're, you're mean. You know, and all this stuff. And I've had to deal with the really learning the difference between factfulness, fact, factualness and truth. And I still mess up on that when I get, get going a little bit. But uh, truth is meaning of life. And uh, seeing people's image bearers really makes the ability of speaking truth much easier because you know a couple deep fall things that are always part of a true story. Is someone that's of infinite intrinsic worth in deserving of my compassion, healing presence, understanding kindness and words of truth. Not violence, be it rhetorically, verbally, internetly, 
or otherwise? Am I magnifying the spark of what God is already uh, doing? So, um, one other truth is everyone is suffering. Everyone is suffering somewhere. Everyone is suffering, and every group of people is suffering. And every organized nation in the world, A, is suffering, and B, any conglomeration of people is guilty of inflicting suffering. And that's throughout the entirety of Scripture. There's been no group of people. You know, Rage Against the Machine uh, has this one deal where they talk about America that says you can't have justice on stolen land. And they're specifically talking about the genocide of native peoples. And I said, and uh, a friend of mine was sharing that when we were talking the other day. I said, well, you know, that's true and not true in that there's no exception. There's no human being occupying a square inch of land anywhere on this planet that is inhabited where that land was by violence taken from someone else. That is the oldest story. I happen to live in the state of Ohio where specifically the, the Mingo people and the Wyandots and the Shawnee were wiped out. So I, my specific real estate I occupy has a very specific story that I've tried to become, have expertise. I don't live in shame with that story, but I believe, as the Bible teaches, since the father, you know, ch children are held accountable for the forebears. So one way I try, and this is just big, big picture, whole Bible, I try to live that out, is I believe uh, our predecessors violently took this place, but... We can, how do we, how do, we do that? We, we show hospitality. We show hospitality. And, for, and it's weird because the, this is kind of like playing t-ball, is the Bible's always talking about the alien and the stranger. So it's kind of easy to know what hospitality looks like in the state of Ohio. So I'm not again anti-Ohio. Check this out, a tattoo, isn't that beautiful? That's a state of Ohio flag, there's a cardinal. You know, I, I because states, can't uh, wage war, I'm pretty good at liking a state. It gets a little harder when you have power of waging war. That's a little harder for me to deal with. But, so all this to say is, I, uh, when I screwed up the most is when I don't tease out the story behind something I'm saying. So, um, so first I want to uh, do a couple things. I want to revisit the context of the book of Daniel by not reading the book of Daniel but having read a passage from Jeremiah, a letter in Jeremiah 29, that Daniel would have heard read to him in group settings over and over and over and over again. This letter written by the prophet Jeremiah was the manifesto of how people live in Babylon. And specifically the... Uh, my communication epic fail is this. I uh, likened, now here, don't, don't tune out just yet, but I likened patriotism to adultery. And I've got uh, some people were legitimately really upset, and maybe one person kind of unlegitimately, but that's a, another story, but uh, a, young, a young person in our church was really upset, and I'm so glad, it's so cool to be able to rethink how you communicate because someone who you watched be born is speaking truth to you. That's just how the kingdom of God works. It's like, we are all, I and mean, we have kids here, but we're all brothers and sisters, you know? So I wanted to address that. But before 
I do that, um, I want to invite Evelyn Abbey to read this letter so you get a break from my voice, and you'll want to take your mask off. Oh, well, yeah, can we crank that? This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and or the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, who Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find, your, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they, may, they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the numbers there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You, see, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. There we go. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. Guys, if you have, a, if you have an, uh, one of those whatever uh, iPhone Bibles, is, can you find a way to like highlight that and make that? Could you screen capture the verse where it talks about pray for the peace of your city and make it the background of your phone? Do something to get this kind of in, uh, put in your gray matter. So um, whatever is doing what Jeremiah says to do while residing in Babylon is what we do as followers of Jesus. At this point, like God's call to loyalty and lifestyle was delivered to one people group who basically never really got the hang of it. Like there was uh, certain things like the year of Jubilee, there was cities of refuge, there was protocols for welcoming refugees and caring for the poor and uh, dealing with multi-generational debt. 
throughout the book of Leviticus. And some people say, why, why, if you're going to say, oh, you're just talking liberal talking points. I said, no, it's just the book of Leviticus. You should read it. It's a hard one to get through, but I promise it's Bible. It's total Bible. So, uh, I, by, by the way, uh, I got a, diff, a different, I got a letter talking to people that I'm just kind of spewing out, not talk, doing the Bible and spewing out uh, liberal talking points. If any of you have had the sad misfortune of hearing me opine about economic and political policies outside of this gathering, you will know that A, I can be very tiresome, and B, I don't fit the categories and the menus regarded here because I've got some really specific weird views, being a, a history nut and a nerd, that do not fit any of the menu items that are involved in the United States of America. So when I get accused of being a fan of any party, or any prepackaged set of ethics, it, it, it hurts my heart. It really hurts because I, I don't do that. But what I do is I think if we follow God, we are going to run afoul of the value system that any giant group of people offer. We will run afoul of any value system of any giant group of people, and we will engender, uh, we will cause people to get upset. So, I look at this passage, and just for a little context, is the entire early church viewed their view, their way of understanding their place in the world for the first several hundred years of the church was, we live in Babylon. Do you live in Jerusalem? Well, it's really Babylon. Do you live in Rome? Well, it's Babylon. Do you live in Cappadocia? Well, that's Babylon. And it was, Babylon is your neighborhood. Babylon is everywhere, because everywhere falls short of the love, justice, and care for creation and humankind compared to the rule and reign of Jesus. So every square inch of this world is Babylon, except parts of Antarctica, maybe, and they're just too darn cold. So, but any inhabited part of this world is a form of Babylon. And what I love is the people in Babylon were given a manifesto not to always, uh, not to try to uh, overthrow Babylon. They were not given military plans on how to defeat uh, Nebuchadnezzar. They were not told how if they all rallied together and like uh, go maybe to Nebuchadnezzar's throne room that they could be the ones who rule Babylon. There is nothing anywhere, in fact, in the New Testament, uh, there was no idea of one person having influence of the reigning powers. So it was all devoted to what can you do to follow God even when it's against the reigning powers. Instead of saying it's the fault of the person who's king or the person that you didn't vote for, but the majority of people did, your question is, what's it mean to be loyal in a disloyal system, in a system disloyal to God, all right? So, the historic understanding of the church is Babylon is wherever you is until Jesus returns. Two is to follow God, is to follow the future kingdom of God here and now. The Lord's Prayer, Bible again, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy will be done. That isn't like, you know, God's preferences, it's that God's everything on earth as it is in heaven. And not heaven, you know, little fairy tale dimension. Heaven is in the dimension God occupies that we can't fully perceive. That our 
dimension is at odds with just ever so slightly. And we ask for that future reign of God to invade our space and have more influence over our lives than Babylon. Straight up Bible. I'm not going to give you just one or two proof texts on this. It's just read the book without the verses and chapters distracting you. Okay? So, the Bible throughout the Old Testament uses the metaphor of adultery for any expression of enthusiasm or loyalty to any system other than the kingdom of jubilee that God brings. Adultery is used, you know, it, we think of idols as, well, your idol is you like this better than God or you worship this, but really, and that might be true, but idolatry in the ancient world um, was always a bearer or representative of a trend that did not treat humans like image bearers of God. So for instance, uh, agrarian cultures had fertility rights and to appease the fertility gods so you could gain wealth and crops, you would abuse a human either through sacrifice or sexual practice. And there were many religions throughout the world that had what's called temple prostitutes. The idea was, in order for me to have prosperity, a human must suffer. And so to worship that idol, I will engage in suffering, inducing suffering. So it, idolatry always desecrates you as an image bearer of God or someone else as an image bearer of God. All right, the core of idolatry is about fealty or loyalty or enthusiasm for anything that isn't uh, love God, love people, end of story. So, throughout many, many years, Christians who are loyal to Jesus as king versus Sunday religious option um, have gone to that verse about praying for the peace of the city, to working for the peace. Hey, you know, build houses, have kids, you know, get them to pray for the peace too. You know, do life. Don't go to war with the city. Love the people. And that was juxtaposed against all the realities of how bad Babylon really is. So, the book of Daniel is the story of one guy and his buddies who took Jeremiah 29 seriously. So, when we've been talking about Daniel, we're talking about someone that was living the operating system of Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. And I believe, whether I'm in Cambodia, whether I'm in Costa Rica, whether I'm in Iceland, or whether I'm in Columbus, Ohio, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14 applies. Now here's where I really screwed up, is I just, as a throwaway comment, talked about patriotism being adultery. And it was a fail, and I rushed and I was quick, and I didn't, I, I was failing to communicate to people and speak to hearts, instead I was throwing a little rhetorical bomb out there. And uh, uh, one person wrote me and just basically uh, told me, you know, you fall in a liberal agenda, you don't read the Bible, and you know, I've been here three weeks and no one, nothing's Bible. Which, you know, I, that's, I, I feel really bad about that. It, it hurts and actually got me in the feels because I am a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit oversensitive. 
But I thought, well, no, I've been like living and swimming and eating till I pooped the book of Daniel, trying to find a way how this can inform how we live. But uh, a young man brought up a super helpful thing. That was, you're not talking about patriotism, you're talking about nationalism. And uh, I sat with that for two weeks thinking about that. And I thought like, well, here's the reality is I actually have a definition that I believe to define the word patriotism. I have a definition that I believe to define the word nationalism. And so according to my definition, I believe I was accurate when what I was speaking, but because people use words to mean different things, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't helpful. So what I'm taking all this time, I'm endeavoring to tell you this is what I meant because I don't want anyone to miss it. And I want to apologize for getting in the way of communicating something I believe is an epic truth of God's kingdom. And uh, I, I apologize for obscuring it two weeks ago. But I want to get you inside my headspace a little bit, not to justify rushing through it. I should have devoted, if I'm going to about this, I need to devote the whole message to it repeatedly, not a point in the outline that kind of just gets thrown in there, right? I mean, it was, it, was, it was dumb of me, and God loves me just as much as he did before he did it. You know, and once again, I don't, I, I felt really shamed at first, but then the Holy Spirit comes in, and I felt convicted. And then God, I felt God gave me a path of making it right, which is joyful. And I get to do the whole Zacchaeus handing money out the window by trying to make this right today. Um, so, um, I want to, in recent years, people have really pointed to the writings of George Orwell a lot as kind of a prophetic commentary of different realities of culture. And people, it's funny because you have people on opposing sides will quote Orwell uh, often, and I really like his works. I get kind of upset when people uh, take it a little out of context. But George Orwell, in addition to writing a lot about uh, uh, politics and systems and uh, doing some great fiction. He also wrote an amazing essay on a proper cup of tea, and then one of the only recorded video clips of him are him explaining how to prepare a, cup, a, cup, a proper cup of tea on YouTube, you need her. But George Orwell contrasted patriotism and nationalism with very helpful definitions. And I think, uh, in, uh, I want to use these to help illuminate what I'm trying to communicate because he is better with words than I am. Um, he wrote an essay, if you want to Google it, Notes on Nationalism. And he kind of made a distinguish the difference between patriotism and nationalism. You say, well, why are you talking about politics? We're talking about the Bible. Because the Bible calls for absolute loyalty to a specific system of governance where Jesus is king. So the statement Jesus is king, or even the word Christ, like, St. Christ in Rome was breaking the law unless you were calling Caesar the Christ. Calling anyone king other than Caesar is, was against the law. So, Jesus Christ, anyone ever use that term? You're saying something that has radical political implications and that would get you killed historically. So, when we're talking about King Jesus, I want to contrast it with... Uh, what uh, the distinctions that George Orwell makes between patriotism and nationalism. He wrote this. By patriotism, I mean devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life. Let me repeat that. Devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life. 
Point two, which one believes to be the best way of life in the world, but has no wish to force upon other people? Patriotism is of its nature defensive, both militarily and culturally. So let me read this again. Let me summarize this again. So it's devotion to a place. I love that, devotion to a place. I feel devotion to a place. Uh, and a particular way of life. Well, I, I feel a sense of devotion to elements of a particular way of life. Yeah, I feel that. Which one believes to be the best in the world? Well, I think following Jesus in your context, wherever you're at, and thinking that's best is good. Now, ironically, I find out that other places in the world oftentimes demonstrate following Jesus better than I do and are teaching me a lot. But has no wish to force this way of life on anyone else. Um, yeah, I, I believe God is non-coercive, so I don't think people should be either. That's good. Patriotism is of its nature defensive, both militarily and culturally. Well, personally, I believe uh, we follow a savior that broke both the religious and civic laws in claiming he deserved all loyalty and, let, and did not uh, strike them dead when they came after him. So that kind of informs my feelings regarding a defensive nature. When I was preaching uh, a couple of weeks ago, I've been talking about the idea of the God of fortresses. And the idea that idolatry of safety, God of fortresses, is loyalty to a way of life that harms people. And I believe fortress mentality always stops followers of Jesus from following Jesus. Uh, fortress mentality means if I view uh, someone who's maybe a religious fundamentalist that thinks ill of me and wants to restrict my liberty, if I view them as someone to protect myself from versus someone to pray for, love, and be Christ-like too, I am in effect worshiping the God of fortresses, which Daniel talks about. I'm going back to the Bible. And I took a long time doing this because the idea... Within our culture in the church, I have heard something countless times. I'm sure they're countable, but not with my brain. Is you never can be too safe. I said the greatest enemy of the gospel is the idea you can never be too safe because we're following a God who risked everything and died saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So we could know his love and carry it forward. And I believe Jesus was raised on the third day. And what that said is sacrificial love and endangerment ain't all that bad because you come back. The reason being the early church couldn't be stopped is they wouldn't serve under Rome, but they would set up hospitals at any battlefield, run onto the field, oftentimes getting speared. They would bring the wounded back to what they called hospices, where we get our word hospital, and they would dress the wounds of both sides. And maybe sometimes even dressing the wound of a soldier who was a memory of a company that did something awful to your family. And Julian the Apostate, one of the Roman emperor's comments is, you can't stop these idiots because they care for the, they, they, they heal the wounds of their enemies. And he was frustrated, he wasn't lauding them. So as far as I've been, God help me. The more I've read this Bible, I feel like I have this conviction that literally something 
little deeper level every week since 1989, I've felt this deepening conviction that my loyalties keep needing to shift. All right? And what my great conviction of how to live in Babylon has been to not worship the God of fortresses, but worship the God of sacrifice. In love, speak truth, non-violently, non-coercively. Daniel did not obey his rulers when they told him to do things that were against his loyalty to Jesus. Otherwise, he served them, and he faced death on several occasions. Maybe more we don't even know about. So as I read the Bible, not a liberal agenda, not a conservative agenda, as I read the story we find ourselves in, what I believe is existential truth, I am compelled that because Jesus is risen from the dead, not just a teacher, you know, there's a ton of really kindly nice teachers that died and it was over, but because Jesus said, lay down your life because you have another life. And you, life is bigger than what you think life is that you're laying down. He vindicated, sacrificing everything in caring for people in the here and now because it's only going to bless you. It's only going to give you a taste of how awesome eternity is going to be. And don't you let anything fill up that bandwidth. So here is uh, what Orwell said about nationalism. I talked about patriotism. Nationalism, on the other hand, is inseparable from the desire for power. <clears throat> for instance, like your country being power, being what it is, is enough. You need to have power in relation to over domination of other nations. The abiding pur purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and more prestige, not for himself, for the nation, but for the nation or other social unit they've chosen to find their individuality and identity in. So nationalism, I read every bit of this, and I, I know a lot of people that identify as Christian that would say a couple of these are cool, maybe even all of them. But to me, this falls in the, falls in the face of the whole Bible. Bible, what's your proof text for this? Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, and history. Here's how people lived out Jesus throughout history. It, you know what history? South Africa. Uh, following Jesus was not the Dutch Reformed in church instituting apartheid. Following Jesus was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that when apartheid was overthrown, instead of looking for the blood of all the people that hurt and killed your family members, they had an opportunity for amnesty for people who came 100% clean and were willing to admit everything they'd done to the families they had injured, and the families had an opportunity to forgive. And it wasn't, blood did not run in the streets like I, people used to say would happen at the end of apartheid. And that was instituted and led by people who are followers of Jesus. And then Rwanda, the Hutus and the Tutsi, the genocide there that is just, oh my gosh. You have people, you have one person that killed family members of another person living as neighbors together because they came together on Jesus. And the, and the church influenced the rest of the governing authorities to offer an opportunity for truth and reconciliation. It was given the Jesus story, not giving act of violence because you deserve it. I hate deserving. I don't want what I deserve. I don't want, uh, you know, 
Uh, unless it's everyone deserves, the only thing I think everyone deserves is to be treated like they're image bearers of God and there's more of God's love to have. So nationalism, to me, there's not one point in that I can really resonate with. Patriotism, depending on how you read it, I can resonate with a couple of points. But some people mean patriotism as, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I, I can appreciate the sentiment behind that, but I just can't sing it when I know some people are more free than others. I mean, when, could you sing that, can you sing that uh, song before the women had to vote, or black people were allowed to vote, or Jim Crow laws didn't prevent black people for voting, or any of that? Can you really uh, say that? I don't, I, I don't, so I don't like singing songs, really. I'm just gonna kind of tip my hand, and partially because being married. So I love music, and I love to sing, to the noise of some people, but our house has a nonstop soundtrack of either the speakers on or we're singing. In fact, our family had a day one day where we said, we're going, we have to talk to each other in Coldplay melodies, because Coldplay lyrics are generally pretty uh, thin for the most part, but the melodies are awesome, so let's have every conversation over Coldplay melody. I love singing, and I sing pop songs to my wife all the time, but I always put her name instead of someone else's name in the lyrics. But imagine if I, there were a million pop songs with one name under that, and that name happened to be of a, a, a woman's name who I was close friends with but wasn't my wife. You know, let's say Corey. Like every love song I know has Corey's name in it. Corey is like a dear, dear friend from ages. But imagine if every time with my wife I'm saying, Corey, you rock so fine. Corey, you blow my mind. Help me, Corey, help. You know, or Adrian'd be like, uh, what's going on here? Um, I, uh, what about that song by Tommy James and the Shondells called Adrian you always used to sing to me? Why are you saying all these songs about Corey? It would hurt my, oh, I got the, yeah. It would hurt my marriage. It, and the thing is, uh, I've got a lot of friends, but if I spent all my time with another friend and no time with Adrian, she'd be like, you have such limited time and passions, but you give it all to them and not to me. It would hurt our marriage. And I believe as followers of Christ, the metaphor became we are the bride of Christ. We are in a marriage. My faith is a marriage. And that's why we sing so many love songs to Jesus, because he consumes our passions. So when I, what I meant by patriotism, that wasn't a good word, but I would say enthusiasm for any governing system is spiritually toxic. Enthusiasm, I'm not talking about being, thinking this is a helpful lesser of evils. Less people die when we do this versus this. I'm all about the lesser of evils. If less people die, let's move in that direction. But other than that, I'm not going to sing a love song to a system. I'm not going to sing a love song that celebrated freedom based on a place that defined uh, black people as not fully human in the, their base beginning document. And by the way, every country sucks. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying, but I'm saying, I'm, all my fealty goes to Jesus. So I'm asking if we're going to be patriots, let's be patriots of heaven. If we're going to be nation, nationalists, well, don't be that, because heaven ain't coercive. You can't even be a heaven nationalist. Bummer. Uh, so I'm a, I want to be a kingdom patriot, being the influence and the reign and rule of Jesus to love your enemies, 
to dress the wounds to the supper, who welcomed the fatherless, the widow, the alien stranger. If you want to read the best, uh, you want to read a good, succinct political manifesto, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Or if you have less time, Luke chapter 6. But here's why it's not just a political manifesto, because we believe Christ is risen, he sent a Holy Spirit that empowers us and brings us together where somehow this ragtag bag of misfits filled with the Spirit can live as total subjects to that future kingdom here and now. And God has a way for you to do that. So we're going to um, do communion. We're going to worship. And I want to ask the prayer people to get to the sides because I believe following Jesus is not about... Tr Stand up, everyone. Because I believe following Jesus is not aspirational. Because I believe following Jesus is not trying harder. Because I believe following Jesus is a story, not a set of rules. I believe effort to follow Jesus as an ethic and a code is just going to give you more things to feel like you suck about. But I believe because Jesus is risen and because we have a, can have a supernatural, relational connection to the Holy Spirit, that we can think of these aspirational things and realize these are God's aspirations for us and he's going to empower us to do them. So I am a kingdom of Jesus patriot and I love pledging allegiance to a nonviolent healer that tells us to love our enemies and accepts me no matter what. So any area of your life that you want to re-pledge fealty to Jesus within your marriage, your work, anything, if you're suffering, if you're sick, if you're one of those people that need healing, we pray for people. Sometimes they're healed. A lot of times they feel loved, and that's cool, but they aren't physically healed. But regardless, we just ask for everything, and we want to be, stand with you as a presence in your suffering. And Jesus most illustrated that in the bread and the cup when he remixed the Jewish Passover feast, which was about escaping slavery. And Jesus took the feast of Passover and said, this is about embracing suffering so people can be set free from slavery this isn't you aren't just being set free from slavery you're suffering for the freedom of others he took the bread that was always broken and said this is my body broken for you this end of suffering he took the final swig he gave the cup for the final swig for everyone and says this cup is the new operating system meaning of life reality you live within in my blood every time you drink of this remember you are living in the future i'm paraphrasing it's all in the Bible. So we're going to take this and ask the Holy Spirit come. When we take this, I pray your Holy Spirit come, fill us. This sense of loyalty is, needs to be supernaturally powered. Get prayer or it's just something to feel guilty with. And know that no matter what, you are loved unconditionally. Amen.